The disciples were in a fight for their lives. They were exhausted, cold, wet, confused, fearful, and feeling out of control. It started to be a beautiful day. In the morning, the ride from Galilee over to this grassy knoll where Jesus had healed and fed over 5,000 men and their families, the disciples with full bellies and renewed faith felt a sense of calling and excitement about what it meant to follow Jesus. At the end of that, Jesus had determined that he wanted to dismiss the crowd and go up and spend time alone with his father. The world, the weight of the world was on his shoulders. Herod had just killed his cousin and was looking for him. The Pharisees were trying to discredit him. The temple guards were trying to kill him. The people all wanted a piece of him. And there were those that were trying to make him a military messiah. He needed time alone with his father. So he asked his disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side. He would meet them later. We see Peter and James and John all getting the boat ready. Peter gets in. He begins to prep the sail and get it lifted. The other disciples come in and find their place. John and Andrew began to, to move out into the ocean, out of this nice, quiet, peaceful lake as the sun begins to set in there before them. As they turn around, they see Jesus with his hands raised in blessing, dismissing the crowd and beginning his journey up those slopes to the mountain to be before his father. They turn around and begin that quiet voyage only to find that the winds of that particular bowl of 684 feet below sea level that, the, that this lake Gennesaret rests on has a furious possibility. And the furious possibility is quick, ferocious storms that come up. Suddenly, as this wind began to beat at them, and they began to experience not this nice, peaceful voyage, but waves beginning to lap and then to crash against the hull. Waves splashing in the faces of all on board. Peter drops the sail. The men that were there in the boat began to struggle to, to chairs to be able to put their backs to the rowing. And they began to fight a furious headwind as they went out to sea. They tried to stay along the shore, but this, as we know, this storm began to push them out into deep, dark water. You know, there are times in our lives when we are cast into fearful storms of uncertainty. We've had a year of that, haven't we? We've had a year of unanticipated and unbelievable suffering and death and We've, we've seen riots, we've, we've dealt with the stress and strain around the country. But I venture to guess that there are fearful storms of uncertainty are in our own personal lives, be it a doctor saying those horrible words, COVID, to doctor saying the more horrible words, cancer, to a boss saying the words, we've got to let you go, to a spouse saying the words, I'm going to go to children being ill, to finances being stretched, 
The fearful storms of uncertainty come to us all. And we know, just as those disciples did, the feelings of confusion, of fear, of exhaustion, of, of questioning in our, in our minds. I really appreciate Ann playing that song. But I can't sing it without crying because she knows that, and many of you know, that my 17-month-old daughter, when I was doing a doctoral program, had to have open-heart surgery, and that song was the only thing that kept me going. The fearful storms of uncertainty come to all of us. What do we do about it? We're afraid. We're confused. You know, fear is natural. Fear comes to all. But the results of fear are the key. What do we do with it? God put into the human system fear, but it has a purpose. Fear will either be a catalyst to deepening our walk with Christ, to furthering our faith with Christ, or it will be a cancer that will eat away our trust in God and cause us to believe that he is distant or non-existent. It's either a catalyst or a cancer. It's not neutral. It's going to go one way or the other. And we see that with the disciples right in this moment. We see them in fearful storms of uncertainty, rowing out, trying with all their might. We meet them exhausted, and we meet them afraid. We have these same things happen to us. But the interesting thing about these disciples you know, they, they had just experienced some great times. They had just experienced a string of miracles from healings to raising this dead child to feeding miraculously these over 5,000 men and their hungry families. They'd, they'd experienced all of that. So shouldn't they be riding the storms, keeping the beat of the, of the oars with my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And I can trust his name because look what he just did. And I know that he is with me. Is that what they're doing? You know, Jesus had been in the boat with them one time when they were in this same experience. But to them, he's nowhere to be found. He's off somewhere else. And how do we often react to that same thing? Where is he? When these storms come to our lives, we tend to do the same thing, don't we? Where's God? Why is this going on? And, and in that moment, help, we, we find the help. The scriptures give us the keys to dealing with fear, to turning it into a catalyst and not a cancer. And it's right here, right in the verses. Right in, in the verse 52, it talks about this. It says that, that, that the disciples were amazed. When it was all over, it said the disciples were amazed and astounded because they had not understood the loaves. They had not understood the miracle. They, they didn't get it. They didn't connect the, the miracles and presence and power of God in Christ with their current circumstances, that in this moment, everything was forgotten, and don't we tend to do the same thing? So the key 
by understanding is when we enter a time of fear, a storm of confusion, to begin to remember God's past blessings, to begin to think about the things and, and connect with what God has done in your life. In one of the times of my storms of uncertainty when I first came into the ministry 34 years ago, first pastorate as an associate in St. Petersburg, Florida, I was going through some rough times, stresses and strains of learning what ministry is about, dealing with the, the desire to have children without the, the success, without the fruit of that. And I was reading this book by Catherine Marshall. She had lost her husband to heart, well, a heart attack. He had been a pastor uh, here in D.C. And she used to write books about, you know, what God was doing. And she said that in one of her books, she said that she had gone into a deep depression. Her husband had just died. Their one young son was getting into trouble at school. Things just weren't going well for them. And she had a friend say, well, remind her of God's blessings. And, of course, that didn't really make her any happier. So she said, well, why don't you do this? The friend said, why don't you go home and just take a pad of paper and begin to list all of the ways that God has blessed you. Just, to, just kind of in your prayer time, just ask God to put on your heart the ways that he has been active in your life. And she did go home after, you know, fussing with that lady for a little while. She went home and she started listing. And the pad of paper began to run out. She began to, God began to open to her mind the, the things that he had done, the faithfulness that he had had. You know, that is a, that is a, a cure, that is a, a step, it is a key to beginning to deal with the present reality of storms by remembering the faithfulness of what God has done. It's, it's what, what Jesus says right here in this word. They did not understand, they did not get it. They didn't make the connection between all that God had been doing in them to then begin to have that trust and that's a biblical principle throughout all of Scripture. Psalm 95 is a great example. We, we pray that in, during the daily office in the morning. It's, it's in there every time, my daily office in the morning. That prayer, it, it starts off so beautifully with, with how we can trust God and, and, and that He is our shepherd and we are the, the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. You know, it goes into this wonderful ways that we can trust God. And then there's like this break right in the middle. And, it, and then it goes into God addressing us, saying, harden not your hearts as at Meribah, as at Massa on the day in the wilderness. Now, in our translations, we actually, it translates into you know, time of suffering. And, but those were actually locations. Massa and Meribah were locations where the, and it, so it tells a story where the children of Israel had been rescued out of Egypt. You know, with God's mighty hand, the miracles, and they got to the Red Sea. He did battle with Pharaoh. He divided the Red Sea. The people went across. Then he began to feed them with manna and just miraculously. But every time they got hungry or every time they got thirsty, every time they went into some storm of fearful uncertainty, they would start complaining. We got to go back to Egypt. This God's not going to take care of us. Every time something happened, boom, where's God? And, and so God was spe is speaking in this psalm, do not be like that. He said, don't harden your hearts. The same word that's used uh, in the gospel, don't harden your hearts as, as your fathers did at Maraban Masa. When they put me to the test, they put me to the proof over and over and over again. 
though they had seen my works for 40 years long, I loathed that generation because they were a people who did not know my ways. You know, it's interesting that word know in that Hebrew context of Psalm 95 is the same word know that's used in Genesis chapter four, verse one, where it says that Adam knew Eve and bore the son Cain. No, in that context is an intimate, loving, precious dependency of trust and kindness where, where two build this wonderful relationship that no matter what happens, you trust one another. No matter what happens, you know the heart of the other person. And that's what God is saying in Psalm 95. And that's what is being said in this one, is why were the disciples not trusting, projecting, looking back at the blessings, and then saying, you know what? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. I can be singing the gospel hymns as I go across these waves because nothing's going to touch me that God does not allow. My days, he has numbered. He has brought them to the beginning. And he, will, he already knows and will bring them to the end that he has established. And no disease, no suffering, no finances, nothing is going to surprise him or stay his hand. There is no day longer or shorter that I have that is what God has already established. No cancer or COVID or anything will take me any one moment sooner than God has ordained. So why am I worried? Because I'm remembering what God has done for me. I am seeing, I am getting, I am making the connection to the faithful God who loves me and whose son came for me. The other piece that the disciples didn't know while they were crying out, Where's God? He, he was with us the last time, but he's gone now. What they didn't know, and, and, but you do because you, you read the scripture with me, is that Jesus saw them from the mountain, it says. He looked down and he, though ascended to the Father to pray, he looked down and he saw their suffering. He, and the, the, the word, the, the katabano uh, Greek word there talks about their suffering. It's, a, it's an emotional word. He saw their, their strain and suffering against the wind. And so he came to them walking on the sea. Now you and I, we, okay, we tend to think of it as, you know, this guy floating out there on the waves, you know, Jesus kind of leaving terra firma and just kind of gliding out there. But no, it says he walked on the sea. Now this sea has 10 to 15 foot swells. This, the wind is blowing against him, getting him soaking wet and pushing at him. He's on a hike that's over two miles long on the ocean, besides the fact that it's a miracle. We got that already, right? And he's, he's two miles long, he is walking on the sea. This reality is, is buffeting against him, but he is not going to leave his disciples. He is not going to, to abandon them. He's going to be with them out there, just like he's going to be with you, no matter where you are. Though he is at the, he has ascended to be with the Father, his eyes are on you. His, his compassionate gaze is looking at the storms of uncertainty that we're in, and he comes to us on those storms, not gliding above them, not just not beaming to where we are. He goes out and stomps on the stinkweed of life and comes to us. 
and meets us where we are. Now, now the confusing piece here is it says that it looks like he's going around them. It's like, what, what, what's that all about? It's, it's fairly indicative that, that Jesus wanted them to be inspired enough by the fact that he was present. That, that he doesn't have to solve every problem in, it's in the midst of it. In other words, we don't have to have him solve all of our problems, cure all of our cancer, deal with all of our finances, and suddenly there's, no, there's everything in the bank. That's how Jesus blesses us. Is really? Do, do we have to have him solve every problem? He, want, he was standing out there saying, be strong, be of good courage, I am with you. Isn't that enough? Well, in this particular passage, which, which Mark records from Peter's sermons, uh, Peter left something out for Mark. I don't know if he was embarrassed. I'm not sure uh, what it was. Matthew, fortunately, who was actually in the boat, records what happened. Peter decided that he was going to try and trust and go out there. You probably remember that, right? Matthew records that he was there. So he's, uh, I, I know he wasn't trying to put Peter on the spot, but he wanted us to know that Peter said, if it's you, Jesus, Call me to come out to you. And so Peter wanted, finally starts getting in. He'd rather be on the storms with Jesus than in the safety of a boat. And I think that's not a bad thing. I would rather be with Jesus in a storm than without him in the safety of wherever I am. And so he begins to go out there. He does the second key. He faces his fears. He puts them head on. He, he stares them down by seeking and walking to Jesus. The thing you know about him in this, in this facing his fears and putting his eyes on Jesus is that second key, is that you notice he's not begging Jesus to stop the storm. He's not, he's not asking Jesus to come to him. He's going to Jesus. He's moving himself out of his position, out of safety into the storm for his Savior. And so he starts out and goes out that way to facing our fears. That's tough, isn't it? When we face our fear, because what we really want God to do is to stop the storm. Calm it right now, and then I will be happy. Calm it, and then I will be faithful. But that's not what Jesus wants. He wants us to love him in spite of the fact that we may not be able to see him in the rising and the, and the lowering of the swells. That we want, he wants us to love and be faithful to him because he is loving and faithful to us. Facing our fears, putting our trust in him, he is faithful. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, you are our Lord. You call us to yourself. We face storms on a weekly basis at times. And then there is the quiet. We prefer the quiet, but it is in the storm that that catalyst brings us closer to you. Bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.